Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Raymond Jang, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks, Owen. It's good to be back and uh, to see your friendly face again on the screen. Yes, it is, mate. It is indeed. Um, today, we're going to be talking about LaVisa Holdings, which is on the ASX under the ticker symbol L-O-V, um, like love, but without the E. Uh, we thought we'd sit down and we'd talk about this company because it's a fascinating retailer. Um just off air, this is going to be just off air. We were talking how we've spent a bit of time on this. I spent a bit of time on this this morning. You've spent a bit of time over the last week or so on it. Um, we're just talking about kind of like what makes this business so special. It's kind of secret sauce. And I think many people will be surprised by how, I guess, how interesting this business is from like an economics perspective once we get into it. Um, but maybe we can start off with just you mate how how are you going with all this market volatility how have you found it yeah it's been quite challenging but um also exciting at the same time because um seeing a lot of the quality names um actually you know dropping in price which is exciting um but there is a lot of um pessimism um across a lot of articles and um, general media so it's bit scary at the same time, but I think it's important to keep a level head. How about yourself? Yeah, I I feel like keeping a level head is pretty hard right now compared to other times. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of the, even the really high quality companies that maybe weren't like grossly overvalued is still finding a flaw in this new market. So, um, I mean, there are companies that were clearly overvalued for example, a company that I own, which is ProMedicus, which you know really well, that has been falling. And this is the best performing stock over the past 10 years on the Australian market. And it's probably fair enough because the company was really expensive. But then there are other businesses which I've found that seem to be cheap, but really are still kind of getting sucked up into the volatility. So I think that's where the opportunity lies for us. But I mean, nonetheless, it's been pretty hairy. One of the companies that we're going to talk today is LaVisa. And this company um, has also been involved in this volatility, maybe for different reasons, which we'll get into. But it's one of those really high quality retailers on the ASX. What we're going to do is uh, Raymond's going to provide a bit of a, I guess, a history on the industry and kind of like where Lavisa sits. And then we're going to um, have a bit of a chit chat about the business. And I'm going to go through my investment checklist uh, for, for listeners. So, mate, um, this episode, by the way, is powered by SelfWealth, our newest sponsor on the Australian Investors Podcast. You can head to selfwealth.com.au. $9.50 for a trade, buy or sell, trade Aussie. US and Hong Kong listed stocks there. So maybe I'll, for those of people that are watching on YouTube, I'll flick on my screen here and we can see uh, LaVisa just here. Why don't we just kick off with, I don't know, just a bit of the industry, where LaVisa sits and what you know about it so far. Yeah, LaVisa is a very interesting business. Um, I think I can speak from personal experience through my better half. Um, I think it, it was a while back, I think, uh, probably seven years ago, when I first entered a LaVisa store, it was out of, um, you know, wasn't out of choice, um, but um, it was a very nice store when you first go in mm. and you see all these jewelry pieces like you have that on the screen. Um, and they're really focused on 
selling three important uh, features of these jewelry products. Um, they're really trying to sell quality, affordable, and on-trend jewelry and fast fashion. So, fast fashion. What is that? You probably, you know, you're younger than me, Owen, so you probably have a better <laughs> idea of what fast fashion is. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess uh, I'm not much younger than you, so you do, I mean, I probably look about five years older than you too, mate, at this rate. But um, yeah, I, fast fashion, right? Like it's um, more like, like things that you would spend less amount of money on, and if it broke, like say if you got a set of earrings and they broke, you wouldn't bother to repair them, right? That's that's kind of like fast fashion, like it's cheaper. It's uh, a bit more affordable. Yeah, exactly. So that's why a lot of their products are priced between $7 to $50, um, mainly because fashion goes in and out uh, quite quickly. And especially, I think over the last five to 10 years, I've seen the rapid shift in the pace of trends changing. I mean, what was cool two weeks ago isn't cool now based on you know social media. Um, I think... Social media and the internet has played a big role in that. But yeah, so LaVisa targets the customer demographic of 25 to 45 year old uh, females. So you think of, you know, people who just started working um, as professionals, they might walk into a store and they might need some jewelry pieces for a networking event or maybe to go out you know, with friends for a special night out. Um, you can yeah go into a Levisa store, um, and they're all located in very high traffic spots. I'm not sure about Melbourne; um, I haven't been to one over there. But in Sydney, it's quite there's quite a few of them um, placed in, in the in the heart of the city. Yeah, I find that they're from what I know, um, in, at least in Melbourne's outer east, they seem to be more so in the areas like of shopping centres where it's like a little nook in the the the, the mall there where you know, maybe um, maybe the rents aren't as high for that awkward space that an other retailer couldn't um, couldn't fit into. So, um, am I right in? I think from my research, I, I realised that uh, stores are around about fifty square meters or less, whereas say like Harvey Norman could be hundreds of square meters. So, to put that in context, it seems like the stores are a lot smaller and they fit a lot more into that space. Yeah, so they all have the same layout. Um, that 50 square meter layout um, and all the products are arranged in a similar fashion. And yeah, they're in those small kind of places where I think people often walk past on the way to work or the train station. I've noticed a few um, at Town Hall Station, which is like in the heart of Sydney CBD. So, and that goes to LaVisa's strategy of not spending money on mass marketing and they're really relying on putting their stores in high um, foot traffic areas to really enhance their brand so mm. which is which is something i like because i tend to shy away from companies where they're trying to compete on um, getting eyeballs through spending a lot of money and capital on marketing we've seen that a lot recently haven't we like a lot of the companies that are just uh, have like gouged on low interest rates and really cheap capital markets have just thrown that into marketing to juice their revenue line, which for a lot of investors has pushed up the share price over the past few years. But now it's kind of like a reversal of that where people are saying, well, hey, you're spending $50 million a year on marketing and you're making a loss of $30 million a year. Like we can't keep 
funding your growth. And it's interesting because I think the number, I could be mistaken, but I think they're, they're, they're tracking it around about 100 new items per week into a store, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Raymond, where they, they're basically, because they're vertically integrated, and this is where we get to like the secret source of the business, they can offer design, uh, manufacturing, warehousing, and distribution all in, in-house, which enables them to keep costs low there as well. So on the supply side, they've also got lower costs than uh, typical r- retail that might rely on third-party logistics and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's another, like on the supply side, if we talk about an advantage, they've got one there as well. Yeah, it's pretty impressive that I think they take eight to 10 weeks to actually design the jewellery and the latest range. So it takes eight to 10 weeks from start to finish. They design it um, and they get it manufactured and supplied through China, uh, I think Thailand and also um, India. And then they store the stock in um, Hong Kong and Melbourne uh, in Australia. And they're the two main distribution centers. So, yeah, they essentially have a lot of power and control the moving pieces of uh, supply, which is very important for a retailer because they're susceptible to um, costs like that. Yeah, it's interesting because they have actually done a tremendous job of making tactical acquisitions along the way. So maybe, uh, I guess, some context for listeners is that uh, the origin story is also quite fascinating because um, of Brett Blundy, who's the chairman, uh, his backstory, uh, Shane Falshear, who's since left the business in late 2021, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And so the business has actually done a great job of making really, really shrewd acquisitions that give them a footprint at a lower risk than maybe organic expansion to say investing heavily in hey, we're going into Europe now. I don't know maybe if, it, if it's worth explaining, I guess, the Diva connection. I think that might be worth worth looking at. Yeah, so um, Leveza was actually founded in 2010 uh, by the people that you mentioned. Uh, Brett Blundy through his private investment firm called BB Retail Capital. So BB Retail Capital um, actually invested in uh, very well-known uh, brands that are probably close to our hearts in our generation. Um <laughs> So businesses like Sanity and Entertainment, um, I'm not sure if you remember trying to, you know, be cool with the headphones and listening to a couple of soundtracks, you know, there. I'm still trying, mate. I'm still trying. (laughs) Um, Other brands include Adair's um, Dusk, which we covered in the Rask Invest service, um, as well as Ryzen things. So Brett Blundy's got a stellar track record with, you know, retail and a really... Um, in-depth experience but at the same time in that period when LaVisa was founded BB Retail Capital was actually also invested and also managing a company called Diva and Diva was much more focused on the younger demographic so the kids to early teens um, demographic Mm. so it was very different to uh, LaVisa at the time LaVisa was still quite um, young because it was founded in 2010. But Diva was interesting because it was started by a husband and wife operation back in 2003. So Colette and Mark Heyman, and they quickly grew the number of stores um, across Australia and New Zealand. I think it got to a point where they had 176 stores in 2010. So that was that coincides with when LaVeza was founded. 
Diva actually ran into uh, some difficulties and challenges. So around October 2011, it copped a lot of negative um, media backlash where management decided to roll out a Playboy branded accessory line targeted at younger girls. And naturally, you know, parents weren't happy with that and expressed their concerns over media and they got um, really bad feedback about that. It's an interesting one because this, I guess, was at the time, Diva was such a interesting business and so many people knew it, you know, by name, even if they weren't, didn't have you know, younger girls in their family or sisters or whatever, um, people knew it. And it was a really sublime, I guess, acquisition for Brett Blundy and to, to change them into Lavisa. And we saw this play out later on as well. Um, we've seen this play out during COVID. So about 10 years later, they made the acquisition of Beeline. Beeline uh, was a European uh, fashion retailer and they bought the business with, with over a hundred stores. What was it for like? 60 or 70 euros? Yeah, 70 euros. 70 euros. So that's not a, like there's no missing numbers there. That is the actual number. Um, and the reason why uh, LaVisa was able to do this, at least from my understanding so far, is that basically the owners of the business, Beeline in uh, Europe, effectively just wanted to keep the business afloat and they didn't want to let go of people. So they found a buyer, which was LaVisa at the time, who was looking to expand in in Europe. And here's LaVisa basically just propping up their balance sheet and converting them all to LaVisa stores, um, willing to take that on. I think this is like we talked before about on the marketing side, and maybe I'll just quickly bring up the, uh, the most recent financial statements here for those people that are watching. But the business has a quite clean financial uh, set of financial statements. So there's no debt, it's lots of cash, and gross profit margins, return on invested capital have all been extremely positive. And so basically, LaVisa was in a position where it could take on Beeline and not really have to worry about COVID and, and all those impacts because it was, it was in a sound financial position at good management who saw an opportunity to take a hold of this thing. And we, we talked earlier about on the, I guess, the demand side, keeping costs low, being in high foot traffic areas with low stores, so meaning lower cost leases. And then on the supply side, being vertically integrated, that enables it to, to have really high returns on invested capital when it reinvests back into the business. But then also being able to make strategic acquisitions. Um, it's rare that I guess you find both of those in one company and particularly a retail company where that's basically a graveyard of a lot of ambitious CEOs and boards of directors. We've got some really interesting, I guess, source material for these. There's a growth with value is a, um, a website that you can check out that's covered LaVisa, which Raymond shared with me. There was a great report on that. If you do want to kind of a bit more of a backstory, the report was written in, I think 2020, but fantastic report from the author on that. Um, I think one of the things that people always think of when they're talking about retail is basically like competition. You know, what's stopping a competitor uh, from doing exactly what LaVisa is doing or has done? Uh, maybe we can talk to them for a little while. I was actually interested when I was doing my running it through my checklist, I was actually interested to, to know that many of the, the competitors that LaVisa has around the world are, have been 
basically run into the ground. So there's this one in Europe, it's called Claire's, and it also has um, a business in, in the United States that it filed for bankruptcy. And then within three years, it was trying to IPO. And this was like last year or something, but it has $500 million of debt and $400 million in derivative liabilities. And then we've got, I guess, a bunch of other names, which you just mentioned, like Diva. Um, as so many others have gone into liquidation here in Australia, yet Lavisa's kind of held strong. I guess let's just talk, maybe we can just riff on competitors for a bit, mate. Um, I've got Pandora as one competitor. Um, and then you've got the big fashion retailers like Zara, uh, maybe even Sports Girl, you know, offers some accessories. Mm. H&M. H&M, yeah. Uh, but these, Mimco, but Mimco is probably at the higher end. Like I remember seeing yeah. some purses from them about a hundred bucks versus, you know, that's a lot more than what you'd pay for anything from LaVisa. Um, so ha- I guess, how do you assess the competitive environment so far? I know you're still going with your research, but how have you thought about that? Yeah, the competition at, when I first looked into a few of those competitors, when you actually look at the Claire's stores, yeah, we'll start off with Claire's and um, you'll see the shop front of the store. It's, it's all purple and it's got a lot of stuff going on like it doesn't purely focus on selling jewelry and if you actually um go through the whole product line it sells a lot of different things like toys there they even sell you know photo frames and home accessories stationery but it's very different kind of customer demographic it's much more targeted at kids um to early teens and if you actually Google Claire's and then go to images, um, you'll see a lot of shop fronts. And because they've been around for so long, um, a lot of those stores are actually quite aged. And you see the fit out is quite similar to perhaps like a reject shop where you put the, the steel tilts um, in the back and then you, you put the products on and you've got the sticker uh, price tags. You see a few of them uh, have been refurbished though and probably newer. But yeah, I think when you see Claire's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different products. So whereas Lavisa is quite focused with their, their product range and their core focus. Lavisa, just looking at it, Lavisa reminds me more of like a higher end. It's sure they've, they've cramped stuff in, but that it reminds me more of a higher end uh, jewelry business, whereas Claire's looks more like, like you said, like a reject shop, kind of like a maybe like a premier investment smiggle type store. It's colourful, mm. it's purple. It's if I'm a like if I could put myself in the shoes of say a 20 year old female or a 25 year old female, I don't want to go into a stop store that looks like smiggle to get a nice pair of earrings that I'm going to wear out tonight for dinner. You know, so I think that plays a big role in. I guess the experience of a LaVisa store too. And I, I, I've actually come across people and through acquaintances come across people who work for LaVisa and they talk about how much pride they take in their store. And if they're like the, you know, the manager on duty, how important it is for them to make sure everything looks really nice. So people, it's inviting for people to come in. The stock is available. There's no, like no one needs to ask, do you have this in stock? You can see it on the store, up on the shelf. And so I think that plays a big role, a big part in it. How about um, one that I thought was um, probably the, the the chief competitor uh, is probably Pandora. Pandora being you know a global behemoth, they, it's listed in the on the uh, Danish stock exchange. It is a business that is I think about nine billion dollars Australian equivalent in terms of market cap versus one point two, one point three for Lavisa. It's a business that has 
a pretty sizable share of the Australian market. I think it's got a bigger share of the um, the jewellery kind of vertical here in Australia. Um, and it's also got, I think, well over a, a thousand stores. I've got my numbers here in my checklist. I think it's got quite a few thousand around the world, right? Mm. It's got a very strong global presence. I think what brought Pandora to fame was the infamous charms that you can buy mm. on the bracelets. And yeah. now you can get Disney or Marvel charms. Um, and they're quite expensive when you look at the prices. They range from $150 to $200 while the brand new items. So, yeah, it's, I think um, I probably differ a bit in terms of my opinion on Pandora's being a prime competitor against LaVisa, um, mainly because the, the value proposition or the product range is slightly different. I think LaVisa is more targeted at the more um, affordable and um, more uh, cheaper products uh, compared to a bit the fancier um, Pandora products. Yeah, that's very fair. And I think Pandora is probably more so, can we take, can we look like Tiffany and take some of their, their market share? Um, and we've seen that recently in Australia. We've seen Pandora and LaVisa be the two kind of standouts that in their prime, you know, target audience, they've been the two that have kind of taken the wheel and taken share. Uh, and that's been reflected in both like the, the growing same store sales or comparable store sales, but also overall revenue growth. Um, I'm not sure if you got a chance to check. Did you check, I guess, the the digital side of LaVisa? Because like competitors um, do emerge through e-commerce these days. Like we talk about, you know, Amazon offering these things. Did you read much into that? Or No, I haven't. I haven't had the chance to um, look at the the website traffic stats, which is always uh, very insightful. Yeah, I um I had a I had a quick look today just before jumping on the show, and Lavisa is a lot smaller than say Proud's uh, jewelry business here in Australia, um, a lot smaller than Proud's, but it's also a little bit smaller than the Pandora website. And the reason that I bring this up is that Pandora is a business that uh, is global. And has done a pretty good job of having a presence in digital. So um, I think that's worth talking about is kind of like, why would LaVisa still be relevant in three or five years when Amazon and all of these other digital businesses are knocking on their door? And I think it comes back to, in some part, the experience that you get from going to a, um, a Pandora or a LaVisa store. It's probably different than going to an Amazon store or something like that. So here we can see, I've just got the, the the traffic stats up. For the last month here in Australia, we can see that the, and for those of you that aren't uh, watching this, they've just got this similar web website up. That's similarweb.com. You can compare website traffics and analytics. Um, and here we can see that uh, Pandora's Australian website, it's about 822,000 hits a month versus LaVisa's 523,000. The rest of it's pretty comparable. But the reason I bring this up, mate, is that I messaged you before the show today and I said, hey, um, do you do you know how much LaVisa is making from its digital um, efforts, its online store? And the answer was neither of us could work it out because uh, management don't disclose that. So I think, you know, when we talk about that being a risk, sure, but maybe it's also an opportunity. They, they're reporting that, um, well, they're telling us that sales are going up and quite quickly, but we just don't know how, how much in terms of sales is going through the site versus 
going into store. I'd imagine it's quite small. Management have hinted at it being in its infancy. So I guess it's something to watch if you're an investor, like watching if management do start to report on, hey, this is how much we're getting in online sales. I, I mean, I think it's going to be small, but it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention um, the piercing services that Leveza provides as well. I don't think Pandora offers um, that um, because there's much more earrings and body piercing products as well on Leveza. Um, so I think that's a point of differentiation that Leveza has and, and that kind of sways people to go in store instead of shopping purely online. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's that's a very fair point. Like, there's a reason for people to be in store, and um, I, I know that there's this this whole thing about. I guess we had this with cinema five years ago, where people uh, that was investors were saying, you know, the cinema is dead. The cinema has gone, and for all intents and purposes, it could still go. You know, we don't necessarily know if people are still going to be going to cinemas to watch a movie in three or five years. But I think it's much like a restaurant, right? We don't go, to, I think we don't go to a restaurant necessarily to, for, sust, for sustenance, we go to a restaurant for the experience. And I think it's very much the same with the cinema. You go to the cinema because it's an experience. And I think the more that retailers can focus on the experience of the store, the better they'll be. And I think La Visa, more so than many others, have done a pretty good job of this. Of course, if people aren't going to shopping malls, if West, Westfield isn't opening in stores, then it's an issue. But um, like you said, you can have them at train stations, you can have them basically anywhere and people will get that um, that similar experience, which is kind of cool. Mate, maybe just in this, for the sake of time, um, I could take you through my checklist and you might be able to just give me some feedback on it. I won't necessarily go through the whole thing um, end to end because if I did, we'd probably be here for a while. But I worked the company through my checklist and just to save people the hassle of like how well did it do, um, I ultimately gave it a score of 57.5. And to put that context around that, this measures business quality. That's what I try and do with my checklist. And Magellan Financial Group got a 65.5. ARB, which is the Australian Bull Bars business, got a 69. And Zero got a 75. So this is measuring business quality. There are a few points where I guess uh, LaVisa fell short and that's maybe not necessarily a reflection of LaVisa. Maybe it's more a reflection of the way that I choose to invest. But we can see here that on the screen in front of you, and I'll, I'll just run through it quickly. I'll give you the high level summary. I feel like LaVisa has a really strong set of financials. I haven't necessarily done heaps and heaps of digging into uh, various metrics like that you know days working capital and all these different types of working capital metrics, which are really important for retailers. But one of the things that I did notice uh, is that working capital is quite comparable between Pandora and LaVisa. So there's nothing like glaringly obvious standing out there. Um, and that would make sense because fast fashion is all about turning things over. I know you've had a quick chance to look at my scores for the company. I don't know if anything jumped out to you, mate. The big ticket for me is how well can this business scale. In the past, we saw operating leverage, you know, just, just rocket. We saw the business's um, sales go way up um, with its, you know, payback on stores between eight and 12 months. It could just roll out stores, get that paid back. And then they were growing at like five or 6% per year in terms of same store sales. So you were having this huge ROI, uh, just revenue falling straight to the bottom line. 
Um, I gave it a two out of four for this metric because I'm not sure as they expand into Europe and the USA if that's going to be more difficult. You know, there's a graveyard, particularly in the United States. I don't know if you have an opinion on that. Yeah, I think that's a big question here with Lavisa is whether it's capable of replicating its success um, across Europe and the US. And I think if you really reveal it under the bonnet of you know what management have been saying and what they're planning on doing with their rollout strategy and remaining disciplined with um, ensuring they secure a highly valuable um, sites and sticking to their value proposition and not veering away from their their core offering um, of um, cheap jewelries that are quality. I think that is a strong sign that they could be the success story that um, others were a- unable to uh, fulfil. And I think I think the biggest um, concerns and the biggest um, red flags with retailers especially when they're going through that growth phase, is really expanding across different product segments and also just really growing really quickly, um, quicker than they can manage. And I think Levees is in a different position because Brett Blundy, he's had a lot of experience in retail. He knows what works and what doesn't. And I think the management team um, have gone through with that, um, especially with Diva. I think that balanced approach and disciplined approach with capital allocation um, really provides them with, provides me with confidence in um, mm. them being able to execute. Yeah. Remember we, you and I did that podcast, it was probably six months ago now where we talked about culture. Um, we talked about culture killers, I think was the, the title of the mm. Australian Investors Podcast episode. And in that episode, we talked about how we pulled up you know, HR scores and HR reviews of of companies, I was fascinated when I did run it through my checklist that Levisa's scores on Glassdoor.com were the worst of any of the fast fashion retailers that I could come across, but also all of like the vanilla um, retailers as well. It was 2.7 out of five, and that's with a, a sample size of about 500 employees. Uh, sorry, 900 employees it was in the end. So, you know, this is not like a small sample where some of the competitors were getting four out of five, 3.8 out of five. And so for me, I, I, I guess I was a bit um, surprised by that. But I remembered an anecdote when I was speaking to a, a, a duty manager at a Levisa store who basically said, you know, it's, it's a fast pace. You work hard when you're at Levisa. Like there's no place to like sit and rest in the back of the store because all of the space is used for uh, people to actually do things with the inventory and like for, for, for it to be shelf space and for employees to, you know, organize the store. So there's no space for you to like sit down, have a cup of tea, chat with your um, colleagues or anything like that. So I think that's probably a valid thing as well. So I, I gave that, a, I gave that a one out of three, um, but I gave like the, the alignment, like a four out of four, because for Australian retail, uh, Solomon Liu from Pat, uh, Premier Investments is probably the other one that stands out in Australian retail. I read an article um, earlier today that basically said that um, Brett Blundy, who is often described as the retail king or the retail entrepreneur, it seems to make sense because, you know, he's done a very, very good job with uh, staying in control of this business, powering returns on capital, providing dividends, compounding earnings. Like it's a pretty good history of execution from management, I think you could say. Yeah, just on the point about um, culture, I think that's a very interesting point. I think when you 
view the employees of a retail company, like every single retail company, and I can empathise having worked at Maya um, back in my younger days. It's it's a you know, it's a tiring job. You're walking, you're standing all day, and your feet are hurting, and you might get some customer complaints every now and then. Um, screaming children in the kids' department as well doesn't help the cause. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I can understand why there would be a lot of negative reviews um, if if a majority of them are um, at that level of, you know, sales assistants or sales staff. But I think the, the key employees here with LaVeza would be the product designers because they do a, a tremendous job in you know, ensuring that they stay up to date with the latest fashion trends. And these product designers, I think it's a team of 20, so there's not many. Um, and I think... Um, the most of the fulfilling and the most interesting jobs probably um, are done in that department. I think it's just to be wary about, you know, not looking too much into, you know, the glass door ratings and actually really understand who are the key employees uh, making the difference for LaVisa. Yeah, I think that you make a really good point there. And that's um, that's something we did bring up in that, that that podcast last time is even though I say like the culture wasn't quite there, it's, um, you know, we, we've got to understand who's who in the zoo of this, uh, in this business. And um, if this is people in the warehouse giving reviews because something's happened at work and they're critical of that or they're disgruntled, that can skew the results. Uh, they can go pretty sour pretty quickly. And whereas to say if it's the CEO that's left or the CEO's leaving a review, um, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure Glassdoor doesn't weight those scores differently. So it's important to recognize that, yeah, I mean, we, we often see this with other companies too, like common threads where, you know, there may be a, a team of people that are let go. And in that case, you know, it, it happens to be that there was a reason for that redundancy, but employees weren't happy about it. And that's that's fair, but it's also, you know, it's probably not indicative of the entire business. So I think that's that's a, that's a good point you bring up there, mate. Um, I guess, so one of the things that, if I just switch, switch back to my checklist here, one of the things that we often uh, look at is basically mission critical businesses or really high qu- quality businesses where um, people can, uh, I guess where businesses can get ingrained or inside the workflows of their customers. And here we can see, uh, I've given it a score of two for being easy to understand, but I've given it a score of zero for is it mission critical? Now, I'm sure if um, I was someone who was in uh, LaVisa's target demographic and I was going out every weekend, I would probably say maybe this is some sort of mission critical jewelry or something like that. But um, for the most part, LaVisa's products are fungible. And this is a business, in my opinion, that kind of needs those designers to design and to be ahead of the trend, to be on the trend, but not ahead of it. And what I mean by that is, like, say if you go to Tiffany and you spend thousands of dollars on a product, do you want that product to be the right product for not just now, but for the next year, for the next few years, probably? Um, whereas LaVisa can basically say, we're not going to be the one who maybe creates that new trend, but we'll find it really quick and we'll replicate it and we'll do it for 10 or $20. Um, whereas to say thousands for some something at Tiffany. And I think, you know, that that's where the competitive advantage lies. It's basically in the how quick can we get the a good product to someone cheaply. I think to your point earlier on, it's like when companies try and be something that they're not, that's probably when the big issue arises. If they tried to make something that was really expensive, for example, well, people might not want that 
you know, people not from La Vista anyway, they might go across the road to Mimco or something like that. So, I mean, I've scored it pretty highly for the products, but for me, it's not uh, a business that has any type of kind of like mission critical, high value to low cost input ratio, something like that. Um, Similarly, for customers, I couldn't really ascertain a lot from the customer loyalty. I think this may come back to the fungibility of products. You know, you can swap a necklace from La Visa out with something from somewhere else. Sure, it might not be as, as good, but you could probably get by with that. Um, I don't know if you would disagree with this point in, for me, mate, which is that they really, it doesn't have at least clearly demonstrated um, customer loyalty. Yeah, I don't think it has much of a brand loyalty um, because it produces so many different kind of products. It's not the same kind of brand um, value that you get through Tiffany and Co. Um, I do think um, perhaps the the brand comes from knowing like you buy what you get, and it's like going to Macca's and you know what to expect. And it's a similar thing with um, La Visa. And I think the convenience of it, um, like you, you know what you get, and then um, say you you don't have jewelry for a networking event that you got invited to a friend's uh, party, and then you can just go and store. So it's it's kind of um, tailored for those situations. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have the. I don't think it has the same you know, recurring revenue that you expect from other higher quality businesses. Like say, uh, we've seen a lot. Of- yeah, like Premedicus. We've seen a lot of retailers um, try and like build this. Um, so, so we we saw when we when you and I um, and Catherine we looked at Dusk, which is the candle retailer. They try they try so hard to get you on their lobby list and on their mail, mailing list for discounts and so on. Uh, Mecca does the same thing. Adore Beauty does the same thing. Many of these e-commerce retailers uh, are trying to get you to be loyal and to have that, I guess, that presence of mind. So um, you become, maybe you become less price conscious and you become more like brand focused uh, in your decision-making. Whereas I couldn't really find, like even on the website when I was surfing around, I couldn't really find like a really strong emphasis on, um, hey, let's let's join the mailing list. Let's follow La Visa here or there. Uh, Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I need to do a bit more research, but I didn't really find that. So um, maybe that's an opportunity for them to build some of that customer loyalty. I don't know how how well it will work. You know, that's uh, probably for people smarter than me to figure out. But um, for me, yeah, it doesn't really have that loyalty and it probably doesn't have the pricing power. Instead, it has the cost advantage, um, which we talked about before. So my, my, my checklist scores for pricing power, which, yeah, it doesn't lend itself very well to what Lovisa is doing. Um, Maybe before we kind of um, wrap up the show, I think maybe the, the key area of focus for us just on the end here should be the competitive advantage. Where do you think LaVisa's moat lies, if at all? I think it actually is management strategy because they've been able to secure really good locations um, and they've been patient with how they approach the rollout strategy. They've committed to entering a territory, um, at least one territory per year based on their prospectus back in 2014. And they've stuck to that strategy. Um, I think they try to 
rollout um, across Spain and they realized that it wasn't working. So they pulled that back. Um, they run similar pilot programs with UK and South Africa and they managed to do that really well. So I think the competitive advantage actually lies with the, the management's discipline um, cost ap ap um, allocation and also um, the locations of the stores. So once you once you secure a really good location, I think it's hard for new competitors to actually do that. And you have BB Retail Capital, um, which is also invested in the large format property, um, I think. And so I think management do have those connections where they can strike good uh, leases because BB Retail Capital actually manages and negotiates all the leases for La Visa. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw some comments on um, the most recent analyst transcript, which was, which were basically asking, you know, do you have, have you seen any kind of flexibility with leases because of everything going on in the economy? Which by the way, I should probably add is actually a, a risk too. Like they have lots of leases, um, which is if you go into the accounts, you know, you adjust for that in your, your models and whatever. But I also should make note that, um, while we're on the topic of the economy, the inflation uh, issues, whether that flows through to um, raw costs or to labour, um, they had there was a note about that basically in the in the most recent half. You're saying yeah, we've noted them, and that's maybe explaining some of the pressure that we're seeing at the gross margin level as well. Um, but also, you know, they rely on air freight, but we, we we've seen around the world the cost of freight is going up. Um, we've seen delays from major places in and around the world. There was actually an interesting comment on that in the recent half year around um, about 50% of their inventory, I believe, and you could correct me on this if you know it, um, flows through their Poland and Chinese, uh, China-based distribution centers. So rather than um, predominantly through Australia or Melbourne, where it was in the past, um, there's now more um, flowing through those markets as, as uh, those warehouses, as the, the business gets bigger outside of Australia. Um, I think, the ways I think the ways that we could measure whether the business is still executing to your point about management is how is the return on capital looking like once you adjust for that you want to adjust for COVID and whatever we saw in self wealth just before that you know return on capital is traditionally you know up in the, the high teens or or um, in the twenties which is a really high return on invested capital for a retailer um, but not dissimilar to Pandora I might add like. Their economics are pretty special too, and that um, their share count's been dropping, and, and so on and so forth. So that's maybe one thing that we could monitor over time. But the other thing, I guess, to be mindful of too is, um, I guess, is the business willing to pull back from key markets overseas if they're not executing? I couldn't find anything on, say, like the payback period for U.S. stores, the payback period for European stores. They, I think, they pulled out of Spain, which was, um, yeah. Which, which was interesting. Um, and that shows maybe, you know, discipline there. But um, I guess those are some things where we could judge management's execution if that is their um, competitive advantage. Um, there's also a special note here to a Joe Aston article written in the AFR that basically highlighted Victor Herrera, as, uh, who's the new CEO, is stood to earn something like $68 million in incentives over three years if he achieved an EBIT target. And you called this out separately before we came on air today as they kind of they changed the goalpost. Lavista changed the goalpost. They went from 
compounded earnings per share to an absolute number, which includes um, like EBIT, like just so, so maybe I'll let you unwind that. Like why that's an interesting change. Uh, why is it, why is it interesting to go from earnings per share to an absolute figure for operating profit? Yeah. So back in FY20 in the annual report, you notice that they had an, an, a long-term incentive arrangement where um, key management personnel's goals were linked to trying to achieve a certain uh, compound annual growth rate um, and it had different tiers. So I think below us was probably maybe 10% per annum and then it slowly um, was like 12%, 14%, 16% and depending on how much um, how much growth they were able to achieve, um, then uh, management were able, were entitled to um, receive performance options. Um, through that, um, but after FY20, naturally FY20 was particularly hard year, and FY21 because of the pandemic. But they decide, perhaps through a lot of discussions and del- deliberations, I think maybe management were feeling it was unfair, um, and um, they settled on changing it to an absolute figure, as you alluded to. Um, based on earnings before interest and tax and that's an absolute amount so which is very different because earnings per share compared to an absolute amount um i think it it's it's easier to achieve um there's um, less moving parts i think with an absolute figure compared to a percentage amount Mm. and um it's interesting because I just brought the forecasts up there for, say, EBITDA forecast from analysts. This is consensus from Refinitiv uh, pushed through from Selfworld. And uh, if I just ju- jump back into the forecast real quick, uh, they got an EBITDA forecast. This is current consensus for 2023 of 164 million. And um, so if we take out the DNA on that, you know, if we're looking at, a, say, 140, 150 million in, in EBIT um, and management's hurdles, something like that, really all they have to do is get close to or just slightly beat consensus to really earn a significant lick of those performance rights, right? And um, interestingly, in the past, LaVisa's faced some issues with its AGMs because people have voted against the REM report, the remuneration report, Um, because there were times there where you could measure it in double digits, like between 10 and 20%. The amount of, uh, I guess, income that the board of directors or senior management were earning relative to the, the profit the business produced as a whole. So um, you, you, you're probably thinking, well, that's a lot to pay back to these executives. But I guess the reason that they can do that is they've got a, a, a founder who's the chair who owns a lot of stock in the company and has significant sway with voting rights. And at 40%. the end, yeah, yeah, so yeah, over 40%. So I guess it makes sense. Like at an AGM, if he's the only one that turns up in person or there's only a few other people there, um, he's got a pretty good vote. So, um, you know, this is, I guess the thing is if you invest in a business where there is over 30% insider ownership, you have to kind of be realistic. You probably it's probably, you know, you, you, it's probably what the founder says goes. Um, and I think the, the fortunate point of this is Brett Blundy has a tremendous track record and has, across all measures, basically done the right thing. Where it would become an issue 
with um, the earnings per share versus absolute um, EBIT figure is if they started making heaps and heaps of acquisitions because then that could just destroy value and you could end up like Claire's or insert other retailer name and went into uh, bankruptcy. So I think, but at the same time, Brett Blunt is probably not going to let that happen because he owns so much of the business, right? So he's probably not going to let that happen. So um, I think that's that's a, a something that people have to be mindful of as well is that the executives might get paid a fair bit. I actually took two points off my score for that just because they were paid a lot. It was a bit of a, it seemed like the yardstick for earning so much in incentives was quite low. Um, or at least it was like pretty generous. Maybe, you know, Victor is a tremendous operator and he delivers overseas. If that's the case, then shareholders will be laughing all the way to the bank. So, yeah, I think, we, I mean, we've been through everything. I think the, the, the thing that we haven't really talked about, mate, is um, basically valuation. Uh, shares have come a long way back. Um, the business offers a, offers a dividend yield fully franked, I believe. I could be mistaken on that. I think it's fully franked. Um, so, you know, a yield of around about 4% in terms of dividends, price earnings ratio of 35 times. But if it cycles out and gets some operating leverage in Europe and uh, the US, that could be good. It's free cash flow positive, even though it's paying a big dividend and it's reinvesting. I think it, you know, it's in terms of if I compare the revenue to the CapEx, it's probably in the teens in terms of how much it's still investing in the business. Uh, it's got a lot of leases on the balance sheet, which you'd expect. Um, so it's a business that current market cap around about 1.4 billion. It doesn't come super cheap, but it's a, a business that is, is a proven compounder. So, um, and still work to be done for both of us. I think you're going to do a write-up for your blog later this month, perhaps. Or maybe if you share that on Twitter, I can give it a bit of a push around. Um, but I think it's fascinating business, mate. I think it's fascinating. Did you like researching yeah. it? Yeah, it was a very interesting business. Um, I think it's always good to research something that's um, usually, you know, outside of my, you know, um, you know flywheel and that um, it's on the female side of things. And I think um, it's a good opportunity because I think um, I think investing is a very male-dominated industry. So um, it's always great to look at, you know, things that the majority of the population might not really um, look at because of their personal experiences. Mm, yeah, like I've never personally bought anything for myself from LaVisa, but I know my partner and friends definitely have. And it, I always go past and it's busy. It's kind of like Pandora and LaVisa are very busy and everything else is pretty quiet. Um, that tends to be the way that it is. And if you follow the crowd, um, you might find that there's a reason to get excited about it. And I think there's a lot of reasons to, to like LaVisa. It's not a stock that I own. Do you own it? Yeah, no, me neither. Um, so it's definitely one that I'm going to put put on my watch list and keep going. I think there are some some areas that I need to know a bit more about. And particularly, I want to get a better handle of like the economics in the United States because during COVID, the economics worsened, obviously. Um, so I want to find out more about that. Try and get a handle on how much they're actually making from per store in the United States and, and Europe would be great. Um, and then also just, you know, seeing the competitive landscape evolve, how they took you know, are going to build loyalty or or not. Um, I think that's that's really important too. Raymond Jang, you're on Twitter, mate. You've got, uh, is it rjang underscore? I think yeah, that's, that's the, right. That's the, that's the Twitter handle. You can reach Raymond there and you can reach me on Twitter at Owen Rask. All the links are in the show notes. So uh, jump on there and, and, and click, say g'day. Um, let us know if you want to do another one of these, epi- if you want us to do another one of these episodes on a company of your choosing, There's so many great companies out there which we can dig into and we're more than happy to. So, Raymond, 
on behalf of myself and everyone um, listening on the Australian Investors Podcast, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Owen.